You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. David Frangione's musical aspirations started at just two years old when he began playing the drums around the same time he lost one eye to cancer. Since then, David has worked as a producer, engineer, and technologist for a long list of iconic rock artists like Aerosmith, The Stones, Ringo Starr, Elton John, Sting, Journey, and more. He was one of the pioneering individuals behind MIDI technology, served as Aerosmith's in-house engineer and technologist from 89 to 2002 and continues to work with them, and is the founder of Audio One, one of the most successful and awarded audio-video firms in the U.S., David has been featured in dozens of media outlets such as CNN, Variety, Sun Sentinel, Miami Herald, and more. He also gained notoriety as the official technologist of the TV show The Osbournes and appeared in multiple episodes of this MTV hit show. David, welcome to Growing Up Rock. Well, it's great to be here, guys. Uh, I definitely grew up on rock and uh, still growing up on rock. David, you've done a ton of stuff, man. And before we get started... I got to ask you, can you explain to the listeners what a technologist is and does? As soon as I get a clue, I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, because we but, love you, but it sounds made up. <laughs> well, maybe it is. You know, maybe that's my own terminology. Who knows? But the thing is, in my definition of it, it is someone who handles and is responsible for all aspects of technology or maybe what you'd consider everything but the engineering on a project. And what a lot of people might not realize if they're not behind the scenes as part of uh, the music making process, both live and in the studio, is that there's a lot of computer work. There's a lot of quote unquote programming. There's a lot of setup. There's a lot of sampling. There's a, there's a lot of things besides microphones and traditional recording consoles that go into music and entertainment for that matter. Digital audio workstations, sequencers, sampling, setting up studios, setting up MIDI systems, uh, running those systems as well, working on those systems, creating new technologies within those systems. So all of those things combined is what I define as a technologist, at least as my career has evolved. Fair enough. So we'll get into the breakdown of producer and engineer, and you just explained kind of what a technologist is, but let's go back to the beginning. We always talk to people and we say, well, tell us what your introduction into music was. Now we know music for you became very important when you lost your eye and as a very young kid, this happened to you. So do you remember exactly kind of what was your introduction into music? Was it a song you heard? Was it a something you saw on TV? What drew you in? Well, it's a great question. And it's interesting because there's been milestones along my life that music has shown up and created the next chapter for my life, my career, my dreams, and, and everything, really. And so to answer your question as far as the very first, I don't remember. That's probably the only milestone being that I was two 
and was going through a lot of trauma that I don't remember specifically a song or a band, but really early on in my life, when I do have recollections of, of what was kind of the beginning, it was rock. It was Led Zeppelin, discovering Led Zeppelin as a kid. You know, I, I watch kids today, you know, I'll, I'll do a talk at a at a school like SAE, which they gave me the honor of, of delivering their commencement speech to their graduating class in 18. And I'm looking out at all of these 17, 18, 19 year old aspiring engineers, producers, et cetera. And it was just so it brought me back to, you know, I got to talk to them. And a lot of them are like just discovering Led Zeppelin. You know, they're a few years into it, but there's so much of Zeppelin that's new to them. And it's just fascinating because that's exactly what happened to me. And for my my age, I'm 51 now. So this would be in the 70s when I was like seven, eight years old and discovering Led Zeppelin, like going from no clue that they existed to all of a sudden going album by album and just how incredible it is to just discover Led Zeppelin one and then two and then three and then four and then Houses of the Holy. And just the whole thing was incredible. And then, of course, they were still a band at that time. So going right up through in through the outdoor and listening to how they were maturing and how, you know, how their music was evolving.
Aerosmith was a huge band for me at the same period, in the mid to late 70s. And uh, Journey in the late 70s, just before and as they hit with Escape in around 81, if I recall. And then Sticks going into, you know, from their harder rock stuff to Paradise Theater. And these bands, you know, Bad Company, ACDC, and then, of course, Back in Black comes out. And this this is my childhood. These are my, like, really early years of what was new music, either at the time, actually, or to me. And then as a drummer, discovering Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, which really bent my, my mind, because here I am listening to this incredible musicianship and songs and playing and the chemistry of bands like Zeppelin and Aerosmith. And then you hear ELP and you listen as a drummer to Carl Palmer and the solos and this incredible stainless steel drum kit that he had made and that looked and sounded like nothing else. And really, there has never been anything else like it. And, you know, that's just a whole nother perspective on rock and on how to approach the instrument. So I've got John Bonham and Keith Moon on one hand, and then I've got Carl Palmer on the other. And it was just such a blessing to grow up at that time and have that be my early inspiration. It was a grand time to be alive for music, for sure. And you talked about Zeppelin. Let me ask you, are you still a Zeppelin fan today? Oh, absolutely. My favorite band. What do you think? Do you like Greta Van Fleet? I do. You know, it seems like every 10 years or so, there's another band that comes out that's like very Zeppelin. And uh, yeah, Greta Van Fleet's a great band. You know, they're great. I agree. If you're a Zeppelin fan, there's no reason in the world why you shouldn't like this band. It's like getting a brand new album from Led Zeppelin. It's fantastic. Yep, it is. And, and you know, that type of band, I wish there were more of. You know, I feel like Guns N' Roses was like the last of that iconic rock band that we just saw one after the other. You know, we had the Stones and the Beatles. And right. The Who and Zeppelin and, you know, we could go on all the way through the 70s and you know, Van Halen and, you know, just the, we just kept getting all these great bands. Yeah. And, of course, all the metal bands. And and then, you know, at the Guns N' Roses, when grunge became a thing, which I'll never totally understand how or why, but nonetheless, it did. And then we just didn't see that kind of evolution of real iconic rock bands again uh, like we had previously for quite some time. So it's just awesome to see bands like Red Event Fleet. Absolutely. Do you happen to remember what that first album was you bought with your own money? Uh, it wasn't an album I bought with my own money. It was an album that I convinced my mother, Rita Frangioni, who passed away in 2004, but was and always will be the closest and most influential person in my life, and she, of course, once again, of the million things that she did for me with the little means that she had, went and bought live bootleg Aerosmith, double live album. And uh, that, and we paid more than we should have because it was at one of the local record stores, which if you remember, uh, if you went to like Sam Goody's or Musicland or uh, Strawberries, you would get, you know, a few dollars off. But if you went to one of these local guys, you kind of paid retail but, you know, it was the closest record store to where we lived. And I was, you know, 10 at the time and she got it for me. And I used to stand on my couch with a mic stand that was just a stand. Didn't have a mic. Well, of course, no electronics, just a stand and pretend I was Steven Tyler. And I knew every word and every nuance and every swear 
that he said on that record, on the two records, on all four sides. And I just thought that album of Aerosmith's was so powerful. It captured the band so well because their live chemistry is just prolific.
and shortly around the same time, she she bought me a Kiss album, and that was also they were a huge influence of mine as a fan. It's interesting when I look back because it was almost like without realizing it, I had these categories that I was putting music into, and there was like the Carl Palmer, Bill Bruford, you know, like these virtuosic drummers category, and then there were the bands that. I just was mesmerized by and, you know, Zeppelin, Aerosmith, et cetera. And then there was Kiss, which just was this larger than life. Paul Stanley himself said to me, you know, another blessing that I've become friends with, with the guys in the band. But at the time, you know, I'm 10 years old. They're the biggest band in the world. I'm their biggest fan in the world. And it's Superman meets music. And so it's like Paul said to me, yeah, you know, we always envisioned Superman with a guitar and what kind of spectacle that would be and how entertaining that would be. And he's right. And so as a 10 year old at the height of Kiss's fame at that time, that was the other record. So those that was the beginning and really the defining moments of my, you know, getting hard rock and uh, and rock and roll in my blood. Right on. So as these influences are going through you. Why pick drums? I mean, you know, you could have picked, I want to be the front man. I want to be the guitar player, but you pick drums. Oh, thank God I didn't pick front man. I wouldn't be on the show right now. I'd probably <laughs> sweep in floors. Uh, but, you know, that's a great question. And I don't know that, I don't know. You know, um, I wish I were, I wish I had asked my mom more questions like that. Cause she passed very unexpectedly. And I don't really know why. I just, the little bit that I've been able to glean from why it was the drums, other than just, you know, the way that the universe kind of conspires on all of us to, you know, get us on our path and, and have us follow our passions, is I think that I was very hyper and very, you know, just driven to want action and moving. And and I just, you know, I started on Yellow Pages and uh, in a toy drum kit, and my mom and dad were very insistent that they were always like really disciplined about, you know, like just, you know, if you're going to do it, do it right. And, you know, don't mess around even as a kid that young. And, and so they were like, well, if you'll practice and you'll play on yellow pages, we'll put three yellow pages on the table, a snare drum, a, a rack tom and a floor tom. Those were my three drums, quote unquote. And they were three yellow pages books. And if you'll play combinations and you'll practice and you'll learn some things on those three yellow pages, then you'll graduate to a real drum kit one day. But let's start there and see if you ever pick up the sticks again. And lo and behold, you know, there wasn't a day that went by that I didn't pick up the sticks. And then I actually got a practice pad before they surprised me with a used uh, four-piece Rogers pink champagne drum kit when I was around eight or nine. And I just never looked back. But something about the drums, you know, right to this minute that we're here now, the drums get me really excited. I love them. I am always inspired by them. I'm always learning something about not only the instrument itself, but of course, how to play it better, how to approach it, you know, in a more musical and and uh, and more inspired way. And so it's really it's an instrument that, um, you know, you never truly master. You're becoming a better drummer until your last hit. Yeah, my my 16 year old daughter is probably listening right now, wondering what the hell yellow pages are. So that was <laughs> the Google of 1970 and 1980, honey. So if you wanted to order a pizza, you didn't call on your cell phone. They had this thing that 
rotary dialed, and you, the only way you could find the number is to look in this big, thick-ass yellow pages. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So it was a phone book, God forbid. And if you did order a pizza and called 411 information, which was the virtual human of a yellow pages, they charged you a fee. Yeah. So you always used the yellow pages instead. Yeah, that's right. They dropped them off at your uh, doorstep uh, once a year, I think. That's exactly right. <laughs> and when I started my consulting business in the 80s, that was that was the first place that I started to advertise. So that, you're right. That's a great description to Google because it was it was both sides of it, just like Google is. As a as a consumer, you had to have the yellow pages. And then when I started my own little business, the yellow pages were there again because that's how people found you. Sonny likes to call it the Google schmoogle. (laughs) (laughs) So, David, you started working with Aerosmith around 89. Tell us what capacity you worked with them in and how did that all come about? Well, Aerosmith, you know, without a doubt changed my life. There's no two ways around it. And um, I started with them because I was doing a lot of MIDI consulting in Boston in the 80s. It's where my my career really started to take flight was going out and promoting myself, I guess, you know, marketing myself, uh, my business as a MIDI consultant. Uh, I spent a couple of years really getting the technology down and started to make a living from anything to do with MIDI. So it could be I was training somebody on how to use their MIDI gear. It could have been that I was setting up a MIDI system. It could have been that I was setting up a whole MIDI studio or a keyboard rig or an electronic drum rig, or it could have been that I was, you know, actually doing the work for a client. You know, clients would come in. I had my own MIDI studio and they would hire me to, you know, just create beats, sounds, record, sequence their music, edit it. So it was all different facets of MIDI. And MIDI, for those who don't know, is an acronym MIDI for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. And it's a protocol, a standard that all equipment uh, conforms to. And so therefore, through this MIDI standard, all equipment can communicate with each other. So what does that mean? Well, if I want to have a keyboard in front of me and I want to hit a note and and if the keyboard plays a string sound, but I want to layer it with a piano, I can hook up another sound module or keyboard to that using a MIDI cable. And when I play the first keyboard, with the strings, the second keyboard that has a piano sound called up will blend with it, even though I'm still only playing one keyboard. So these, this is how the communication makes music. And of course, you take that, you know, really far and you can have, you know, 40 devices all communicating with different sounds at different times on different channels, etc. So I'm doing all of this in the 80s and working really hard and really, really hustling to get my name out there so anybody who needed MIDI would call me. And uh, I was starting to get a lot of work and started to work with some cool people like Elton John and uh, the Boston Symphony and New Kids on the Block. And, you know, just some some cool stuff was going on. And I got a call from someone who had been referred to me through, again, this network that I was working within. And it was growing and growing. And so all of a sudden it grew to the point where I was referred by somebody to Tom Hamilton from Aerosmith, the bass player. So I get a phone call from him and he tells me that he has a MIDI rig and that he needs somebody to come over and help him learn how to use it and get some song ideas down 
So it was kind of a combo of like, you know, show me how to use my setup. And while I'm learning it, run the setup for me so I can watch you, but also get some work done and get some music made on my home system because he had a MIDI rig at his house. So I went there and started, you know, worked with them and, and he was working on Janie's got a gun and which is everybody I'm sure knows he wrote, you know, co-wrote for pump. And so that's where it started. And I just did the best I could and really enjoy, you know, of course the song is early in being written. So nobody knows it's going to be an iconic song with the video and all that stuff. But I was such a huge fan of Aerosmith, as I'm sure you guys can figure out by now with live bootleg and standing on my couch, you know, lip syncing Steven, <laughs> that I was just so excited to work with them and just be, you know, just have any interaction with them, especially musically. It's like, this is, you know, this is awesome. Uh, he's such a great guy and a super talent. And he really liked working with me too, I guess, because after I worked with him for just a couple of weeks, he said, Hey, would you be cool with coming down to our, we're working on this new album and we're rehearsing songs and working on different things. And, you know, we're, we're looking at using technology to help us through this, uh, which they hadn't done previously in their, their pre-production and kind of, and really in, in anything really in right. the Aerosmith world, it really didn't have much technology to it prior to pump. And he said, uh, which I didn't know, but he he told me, and he said, would you be willing to come down and meet the band and see if you click and if there's a, if you guys, you know, if you can help us. And of course, he was so humble and, and just genuine about it. And of course, he didn't even finish the sentence. And I was like, address, city, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. that was a no brainer. So lo and behold, I go to an Aerosmith rehearsal for the first time. Steven took the reins. And immediately was like, you know, uh, I've got this idea. You know, I brought a sequencer with me, an MC500, which was a really cool rolling sequencer. Did not use a computer. The MC500 was a standalone sequencer. It had like this little LCD screen with, you know, like 25 characters on it or something. So, and a rotary dial and, a, and like a shortcut keypad with like nine buttons. It was archaic by any standard. But at the time was was not archaic was actually a really good sequencer uh so anybody who wants a blast from the past look up roland mc500 and mc500 mark ii and that's how that was the sequencer i used on pump but anyway the point is that i clicked with steven and uh i really i knew how to use that sequencer and i knew how to use the tools that they needed to capture song ideas and and work out some things and then we never looked back. And so it evolved from that to building their studios and then running the studios for their pre-production. So the cycle of, of an Aerosmith record would be a, a certain period of time to write songs, then another period of time directly after that to record the songs. So the first period would be anywhere from a few months to a year and that would be done at their home studios. And that was my zone with them is I would every day, my work quote unquote was go to Joe or Steven's studio, work with Joe and Steven. Maybe they bring in another songwriter as well. Some, some weeks. And then for a year they would write songs and I would run, you know, I would be at the starship enterprise making sure that everything was getting recorded and uh, played back and archived and put together. So that at the end of the process, They'd have all their songs demoed, 
And uh, they, along with whoever was going to produce the record and the A&R guy, who for the most part was John Kalodner, would listen to what they had and then say, okay, well, you know what? I think we need a couple more songs for the record or, hey, we got plenty. We'll choose the ones that are going to make the final cut. And then they would go into the studio with the producer where I would then take a different role because every producer, which most – it was Kevin Shirley, Bruce Fairbairn, Glenn Ballard. It was a multitude of different guys over my span with them. And then Mark Hudson on Just Push Play, which was the last record I did with them. That producer would bring in their own engineer. So now I think the band really liked the fact that I was just happy to be a part of it and I didn't have an ego about, you know, I need to have this role or that role. My role was whatever they needed me for. And if that meant dropping Joe's kids off at McDonald's and bringing them back to the studio in between takes, that's fine. I was there to serve the process and to allow Joe and Steven to have absolutely unrestricted creative freedom and let the technology and the environment disappear so they could just be them. And as that process changed and metamorphosized over the course of each record and each tour and or even in that case, each song, because we they were doing like songs for movies and amusement park rides and pinball machines and whatever it was, I was at the helm. But then sometimes I would be one step behind the helm. But Steven and Joe liked the fact that I was kind of the safety net, like if something came up technologically even the best engineers at that time who were working with them weren't really up to speed on MIDI and sampling. And so everybody had a role. And, um, you know, my time with them would be pumped to just push play. That was really the the meat on the bone of my tenure with the band, although I've done projects with them up till recently. But that was really the heavy lifting of my career with them. And it was the most unbelievable experience and the music and the success and the tours and the, the movies and the songs and the albums, it's just, you know, it was just a, a total blessing. I pinched myself because that period of the band's, you know, creative process and the music business as it was will never be again. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. So. We're doing a little research before we were going to talk to you, knowing that your dad was a butcher, mom was a legal secretary. Obviously, they understood the importance of working hard, stable environment. That's right. You choose the music business, freelancer, consultant, open your own <laughs> business. Like your mom must have thought you were nuts. Like what drove you to those decisions? Oh man, you're like in a time machine uh, because that is exactly what happened. They were freaked out. And then you have to add one more thing to it, which my brother is a Harvard PhD MD. So he's got three degrees from Harvard University, undergrad, medical doctor, and PhD. Then that wasn't enough. He went to Harvard and MIT simultaneously and got another degree that's called HST. So here's this overly awarded Harvard professor, which he is now, doctor, from the same parents that are going, 
please be a lawyer because the perfect Italian family has a Harvard doctor on one hand and a Harvard lawyer on the other. But it doesn't work if the Harvard lawyer goes rogue and becomes this crazy music business guy. So you can't do that. So she's exactly what you described. They went kind of crazy in a loving but Italian way. And I really – my passion has been and is music and technology and business. Those three things, which I've been able to successfully fuse through nothing other than relentless work and pursuit, really are what's in my blood. And you're absolutely right. The work ethic that they instilled in my brother and me, you know, I have one brother, that's my whole family, it was was just, you know, relentless is the only way to put it. I mean, they were so focused on you've got to work for everything that you have and maybe even too much. So, you know, I mean, there's alternative, you know, approaches where people go, well, work smart, not hard. And, you know, there's different ways to to get where you want to go. But they were of the mindset, you work hard, you don't stop, you set your focuses on a goal. And not only that, but you take an approach that's very learned. So my brother, of course, went to the extreme through academia. And I went through the other extreme through you know, researching and reading manuals and getting a lot of tactile hands-on experience. You know, we you talked about it earlier, guys, and it's it now kind of reminds me to bring it up that there was no internet. I built my career and got these platinum records and these and you know worked with these amazing artists that were dreams come true for for my life through just a telephone, not a cell phone, a wired phone, a pay phone getting directions that I wrote out on a piece of paper, asking whoever I was going to, including Aerosmith or Joe Perry uh, or Steven, or Tom Hamilton or whoever. Um, Steven Tyler, when he first gave me directions to his, his house and his subsequently his home studio, you know, there was a rock on the road that had something inscribed in it that he gave me as a landmark. I mean, that was your Google Maps. And so – I built all of this. The most technologically sophisticated piece of equipment I had to run my business was eventually a fax machine, which was thermal paper, so you couldn't even use it to really make copies. That Those were the tools we had, but we did it, and through hard work and through just not ever saying that I was going to make an excuse, uh, I was able to get to, you know, to, to continue to hit the, the goals, the milestones. It's amazing anybody had success back then. Jesus, how did, <laughs> how did we live? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It really is. I mean, there wasn't – the computers were barely – you know, when I discovered a Mac Plus, which the first iteration had an external 20 meg hard drive and 4 meg of RAM was like $5,000, which was a fortune <laughs> uh, for an up-and-coming idiot. And so it's really, uh, you know, it's really amazing when I look back, but it just shows you that when you're so focused on what you want to accomplish, nothing holds you back. You know, where if I had to go somewhere for a project to try to take a break and, and turn it into something bigger and work with a client, you know, it didn't matter how I flew there. I, there used to be a, an airline, People's Express, right? You'd, you'd buy a $25 ticket and then you'd go to the airport and you would wait to see if they would call your name. It was like an airline with a lottery. It was the most bizarre thing. I don't even know how it worked. It was so long ago. I barely even remember. But I just remember it was cheap. 
and eventually they would call your name. So you'd have to get to the airport three hours before, you know, a flight that you'd actually leave on. And, uh, and every hour they would fly. And, uh, you know, you, j- you just did what you had to do. Um, all right. So you go from music to TV. Now, being a technologist, like what are the – are there a ton of differences between what you're doing for Aerosmith and what you're doing for MTV? Or is it similar skills that translate? Well, at that point, you know, the Osbournes were 2003, if my memory serves me correct, when I got involved with them. And at that point, I had all of the different facets of it, you know, pretty fluent. So it might have been different things depending on what I was doing each day or who I was doing it for, but it was all still in the same wheelhouse. The 80s into the 90s, you know, I was acquiring different skills and I was building up my my repertoire of what I was really good at or, you know, understood at least enough to be able to add value to a project. By the time 2003 came, I had already built, you know, dozens of studios, had worked on a lot of projects, a lot of records, tours, home systems that were very technologically sophisticated. So when the Osbournes came along, they threw a lot of different things at me that they needed done between their home on Doheny, where they filmed the show at that time, and Ozzy's personal studio that I built and some tour rig stuff that he needed. And the kids needed different things because they were starting to move out and go on their own and buy their own house and stuff. And and there was just a lot of different technology needs that were coming up. And I, I was able to wear all the hats and do them all as if that was the only thing that I did. Right on. So it looks like you uh... – you well, you mentioned earlier that you worked with Kiss. In what capacity was it that you ended up working with Kiss? Well, my first project for Kiss was mixing into surround sound a DVD called Kiss the Second Coming. And I don't know if anybody remembers it or not, but it was a it was kind of a short length DVD that was a documentary basically of when Kiss reunited in makeup. And did back like I think it was 96-ish. They got with Doc McGee and the four original members got back together. And they did their, you know, their new quote-unquote alive tour. And it was a huge smash success. And there was kind of a documentary done of it. And it came out on DVD and they asked me to mix it. It's a surround sound. I have the VHS. Was it on VHS too? I have the VHS yeah. a second That's time. what I have too. Kiss the Second Coming, amazing. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know they, oh, darn it, I didn't know it was on VHS too. So, all right, well, they only told me that it was going out on DVD. <laughs> and uh, and I mixed it so it could go out on either. It would be Dolby Surround on VHS and it would be Dolby Digital on, on DVD. But nonetheless, uh, that's awesome. I didn't realize it was, I thought it was only that one format. So that project was my first. And then there was some like little miscellaneous one-off stuff on DVD when they do like a special appearance or whatever that I did some surround mixing for. And then fast forward, I wrote a book, which Eric Singer is a part of, which is Crash, the World's Greatest Drum Kits. And I just did some one-off projects and some business deal stuff with different guys in the band and Doc. The KISS relationship has been really interesting because those guys are involved in so many different things. And have, you know, Paul has like a home rehearsal set up that needed some acoustics and needed some other things. And then, you know, the band's involved in all of these different projects. And 
it's kind of been a Swiss Army knife for me because with that band, it's been a little different than almost every other band that I've had work with because that band is not as much in need of the heavy technology lifting that almost every artist I've worked with has needed. That band has been more on the business side. And some of the projects I can't really disclose. I can just tell you that I've worked with them on different things. And, um, you know, it's been amazing. I mean, childhood heroes. Right on. So you talked about it there, talking about all these different acts that you work with and Swiss Army Knife of deals. Were you ever offered a business opportunity that you turned down that maybe you ended up regretting? Well, I'm sure there's been lots of them. You know, one of the sayings I have, especially from the home technology side of things, which Audio One, as you mentioned earlier, has been very successful in kind of wearing multiple hats. You know, we have the pro side, but we also have the home side. And in either of the sides, it's very big time stuff. As far as when somebody calls us, they usually have a project that needs quite a bit of technology and they're usually very sophisticated projects. That's kind of our wheelhouse. And my saying is sometimes the best client or project uh, is the one that you don't take. And that's what's best for the company or for me. And so there have been times where I would accept a project and early on, especially on the home side, didn't happen much on the pro side, but on the home side. And then you realize that you have you don't have good chemistry with the client, you know, because, yeah, they had a really impressive project that was really cool to work on. But, you know, sometimes it's interesting, like the music business, which are my roots and, and my heart and soul, that side of the business is filled with a lot of passion. And even though a lot of rock stars are famous, or all of them are famous, let's say, and they're to some extent, to varying degrees, financially well off, the guys that would call Audio One for the technology side who weren't rock stars, they were just strictly wealthy business people. And they'd have these great projects and they'd have this incredible vision. But I realized after doing it for a while, because I was always so you know, focused on what the project was, you know, what, what did you want to accomplish? And I would get a, I the allure to me was, wow, we can do such cool projects. We can do such cool, you know, put some cool ideas into place. And then you realize, or I realized that my heart and soul being with musicians and kindred spirits, when I would deal with just people who were, you know, they were smart and successful and you could learn from them. But that didn't really mean that you'd have chemistry with them because people who are strictly businessmen, although a lot of them I do call close friends and I have had great chemistry with them, not all of them, you know. So that's where, whereas with music, I, I really got along with and was able to gel with almost everybody because we all had that in common. We all wanted to move somebody with our art. We wanted to create something that was bigger than ourselves and hopefully make a difference Give somebody their first kiss song, you know, or their prom night song or, you know, the memory of their loved one song. And it's so big and so powerful. Whereas a business guy that just makes money, my hat's off to them. A lot of times that wasn't that didn't gel, you know. And so we found our zone and we found our way to interview clients and make sure that everybody's going to be 
you know, successful together because I certainly can do any project, but that doesn't mean I want to. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to get along with and they're going to get along with me in a way that it's a process that you really enjoy. And that's the most important thing, right? I mean, you want to, life is so short that you don't just want to accomplish the result. You want to accomplish the result the whole time. As you're going towards the result, you want that process to be as enjoyable as when you accomplish it. And that took me a while to gain that wisdom and to understand that that the whole process can be successful and that there's a lot of great people out there who you can enjoy that process with and they get what you you are able to provide for them and you get the reward of that experience and uh, the end result. So it's a win-win. Yeah, I think that's an important message. I think that's something that I learned recently as well. It's it's not about the money and it's not necessarily about the job itself. It's about enjoying the journey to success or to the end result. You know, you got to enjoy the journey in whatever you're doing. Otherwise, it's kind of pointless. But yeah, I agree 100%. Well, that's absolutely right. And that is a huge, huge lesson that it sounds so simplistic when you just hear what we're saying, but I'm telling everybody that your words are from your lips to God's ears, that if somebody actually listens to that and actually takes note and tries to learn from that wisdom, they're going to save themselves a lot of grief and they're going to cut to the scene that really matters very fast. And that's, that's a big lesson. It took me a long time to really get it. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. So the resumes got Backstreet Boys, New Kids on the Block, Ozzy, Aerosmith, Elton John, Journey, Sticks, Rolling Stones, Brian Adams, Shakira, Cher, and a bunch of others. Is there somebody you're holding out for? Like, do you hope Robert Plant calls soon? Or is there somebody you're missing off this resume that you want to work with? Oh, man, Robert Plant would be amazing. I met Robert and Jimmy backstage at a Paige Plant concert with Stephen and Joe. We were working in the studio on Nine Lives. And this was like what's so profound about spending that much time that, that you know, those 14 years with the band all the time is that we're sitting in the studio. It's five o'clock in the afternoon. Joe comes down. He's like, hey, you, you, you want to go with us to this show? And I said, you know, sure. What show? And he's like, oh, Robert and Jimmy are playing at the Garden. And I'm like, Robert and Jimmy, like as in Plant and Page? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, you just laugh. You know, like you're asking me? And so we jump in the limo. It was Glenn Ballard, Joe, Steven, myself, and Billy Perry, Joe's wife. And the five of us drive right backstage. You know, just I can't believe I'm about to go meet Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. And of course, because I was with the guys in the band, you know, we actually spent quite a bit of time back backstage and Billy Perry took a picture of Jimmy Page and me. And I can't believe this, but she took the picture, had it framed, made it into an eight by 10. It was this incredible picture. She's a great photographer, but she just took this amazing picture and I lost the eight by 10 in a move. And I got to get another copy of it. My only picture with a member of Led Zeppelin at a memory like that. And the picture's gone because this is pre-digital. 
This is when she'd actually develop the photo in a dark room and hand me a copy, and that's what existed. And when I moved offices a few years ago, the picture got stolen. I had it. She had it signed by Jimmy. So it was a picture of me with Jimmy Page taken by Billy Perry, signed by Jimmy Page. Somebody stole the picture. Wow. So, yeah, that's one of my things that I wish I could get that picture back. But as far as artists, there's so many artists that, you know, when I get the call, it hits me. Like, you know, oh, my God, I can work, you know, wow, I haven't worked with that artist yet. That would be amazing to work with them. And, you know, nobody in particular off the top of my head, but uh, absolutely, there's so many great artists that I'd love to work with. And, you know, you just you just keep perfecting your craft and doing a great job as if every one is the last one you're ever going to do. And somehow, some way you get you get called and people hear about you and they you know, they have a need for something and they say, oh, this guy can do it. And they call me. So just, you know, as humans, you know, we try to stay open minded, you know, not have stereotypes about certain musicians or make predetermined thoughts of who the person is, but it happens, right? So were you ever in a studio and you're like, oh my God, this person's talent just absolutely floored you. Like, it's like, I had no idea they had that kind of talent. Almost every artist you mentioned on my resume Really, you, you can't believe the depth of these artists. What you get when you see them live or hear them on record is just part of it. You know, maybe it's a big part of it even, but it's not all of it. There's so much depth and so much talent. I mean, I said that about those were my thoughts about Steven and Joe almost every day we were in the studio. They are so amazing just at everything they do. Joe Perry, I remember one time I was sitting in the studio, it was just him, me, and his mother. And he was just riffing. And at the time, I was running a DAT machine, right? D-A-T, the yeah. little mini digital that you know was the first kind yeah. of erasable, real-time digital recording technology, two-channel in the early 90s. And I was running a DAT, which we would then later put into a, a, a digital audio workstation. Again, at that time, only two channels. And then we would cut it together and try to pick out the snippets and, and you know, build songs off of them. Anyway, he's riffing away. And after a half an hour, I mean, we're talking a half an hour. It's like nothing for a period of time. I look at his mom and I just said, look, I don't want to sound like a cliche idiot, but where the hell is this coming from? Like I, he played the equivalent of my recollection at that time, the equivalent of walk this way level riffs for 30 straight minutes and every one of them was different and you just shake your head and just go only god can bestow this level of talent on somebody there are chosen ones mick jagger jimmy page steven tyler joe perry you know pete townsend roger dalton i mean we could list them there are chosen ones and my experience of being in the creative process with some of these artists and really being in the trenches absolutely solidified the depth of their ability and their ideas, their creativity, the way they think, the way they approach things. It is not normal. It is absolutely like another frequency. Yeah. Wow. Right on. Your company, your company builds home studios. That's part of what your company does. Do you remember the last artist you built one for? Uh, well, I did a radio broadcast suite for DJ Irie who's a really big DJ out there for people who are in the, the DJ and club and EDM world. 
and that was just a few months ago. And let's see, you know, it's funny. It's people ask me all the time questions like that. And I, I don't, it's, it's really interesting how I really zone out as soon as it's done. I have it all on my memory bank, but I just don't think about that stuff. I don't think about the credits and the who I did what for when I'm like so focused on what I'm doing today and what I need to do tomorrow that I, I just like the volume of work. It's like people will come up to me and say, Oh, you know, I was at such and such as, and, and, you know, I was with sting and he said, you did this and this and this. And, and, um, and they actually know more about what I did than I do because it was 10 years ago. And it was like, so you know, but DJIRE was a very recent project. I did a really cool project in wine country a few months ago, an outdoor live venue that Eric Singer from Kiss is a part of. He actually brought me into it. And, you know, it's this really amazing winery that they want to host bands coming through and being able to perform because there isn't a live concert venue in this area of the wine country out in Northern Cal. So this visionary uh, wine owner, Chad Rava said, you know, I want to, I want to create a venue where like cheap trick and like all these bands can come and play when they're on the road and this can be a stop. And he had the the space and he had this beautiful winery and all this land, et cetera, but he needed a system that was going to be able to, to do it and, and have the acoustic set. And, you know, it's a lot more to it. People think like, Oh, you set up a sound system. Like what's the big deal? Like there's so much that goes into getting it right between the stage and the electronics and the lighting and the acoustics in the venue and the orientations. And, you know, just a lot of elements. There's, there's a lot of design and engineering that goes into a successful uh, sound installation. And we did it and we nailed it. And lo and behold, they had Steph Attica and Eric Singer and all of these rock stars come up and and do some shows to just kind of break it in before they opened it up to uh, the touring bands. And uh, it it worked out great. They were like, man, this is like the best sounding thing we could have ever imagined. So those were two, those were like like the last few months. So everybody's got a home studio nowadays, right? You know, home studios in the 80s. And then, you know, progressing into the 90s. And, of course, the guys in Aerosmith started to have studios uh, through the late 80s and early 90s. Each, you know, one at a time, they started to kind of have their own studios. People credit me with building the first home studio. And Chick Corea was the artist that I worked with at that time in the late 80s. I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know if I was the first. I know I was one of the first. I don't know if I was the first. But back then... Having a home studio meant that you could do some of your album at home. You really couldn't do all of your project at home at that time unless you built a real studio in your house, which is not really a home studio, I guess. But as it evolved, the technology and equipment got scaled to the point where you could actually start doing entire projects in your house and you would not have to migrate to a commercial studio for any part of it. But it took a good 10 years for everything to kind of catch up and gel and all the different parts of a studio get to the point where that could happen and be cost effective and, you know, be done in a space that someone would have in their house. Right. Because commercial studios for a long time, you know, were giant spaces and you didn't even have that much real estate available in a house, whether you could afford it or not. It didn't matter. It just wasn't there. So everything kind of got to scale and got, you know, actually plausible. You know, that's really what 
happened. Yeah, I mean, so home studios are now at the point where we can take a space in someone's home without it being a giant mansion or, you know, or, you know, having to need some really crazy amount of space and put together a really nice studio setup that's properly isolated and properly set up that you can go in and do projects. And maybe those projects are bands or artists. Maybe those projects are sound for movies or TV or any kind of multimedia, you know, whatever it is, you know, everybody has different needs. Uh, but you know, it's so exciting, you know, when you sit down with a client and you, and you get a download on, you know, what they want to do when the room's finished and you kind of start envisioning, you know, what that's going to be and taking that all the way to the final creation. I mean, it's very much like writing a book or making a record, you know, they're all highly creative processes that have a very clearly defined beginning, middle and end. Yeah. Right on. Hey, tell us about all access IDA. Well, all access IDA, IDA is inspire and develop artists. And the idea behind it is that in today's music business, we're at a very different time in the music business than has ever existed previously. All access IDA, the music business for most of eternity has been that you go out and you figure out, you know, how to write great songs and you go on the road and you hopefully have people hear you. And then you get discovered by a record company and they sign you and they help develop you and you find a manager and this whole conglomerate, this team puts together a plan and gets your music at its highest level, gets your band and artistry sounding, you know, at top shelf, puts out a record, promotes it, go out, you play. And this cycle continues if you're successful. And that's how the music business has functioned in a nutshell. Until recently, where artists are able to essentially put a team together that does everything I just said, but not give up 90% of their money, because that's what the labels a lot of times will take. And so if you put your own team together and you can fund the team and you don't have to know what the team needs to do, because that's what you have the team for. You can focus on having your career built and developed and focus on the creative aspects and whatever business aspects that are important to you. And the IDA team essentially fills the need of all of the other people on the team. So you essentially, with my spearheading it, you have this whole team of people that help you develop your artistry, help you put together all of the back-end business things, help you find a manager or work with one if you already have it, get your first record together or whatever the next record that you want to do is, and just fill all of these roles without taking a piece of your income. You know, we don't get a percentage. We just charge a fee, and then you own everything after that. It's very artist-friendly. And the whole reason I got behind it is I've spent so much time with great artists. I can bring a lot of value to artists that have – you know, are at a place in their career that they want to save time. You know, I always say, if you want to know the road ahead, ask those who are coming back. So you find somebody who knows exactly what to do and you just save an enormous amount of time. And that was the real, you know, for me, the inspiration to create an inspire and develop artist program was, Hey, 
you know, the artists that I've worked with over the years, and they're not artists, I can tell you who they are, because one of the things behind IDA is the artists don't tell you that IDA helped them with these different things. It's kind of a it's a behind the scenes thing. Our success is based on our artists being happy and accomplishing their goals. And then we go on to the next artist and we're there, you know, whenever an artist needs us. But it's very much business to business. It's not something we go out to the public and say, oh, yeah, they they couldn't perform three months ago. But now look at them. You know, I mean, that's right. that's behind the scenes stuff. And our success is based on the fact that every artist I've worked with, I, I know I've saved up to 10 years of time from what they would have taken to what we ended up doing in anywhere from six months to 18 months. I mean, it's incredible. All right. So we all make boo-boos. Do you remember one you made when you were in charge of a project? Like maybe like loving an elevator is done. You accidentally hit the escape key and deleted it or something. Oh my God. We have, you know, you know, the more success you have, the more mistakes you have to go along with them. And there's no way around that, that I I'm aware of. Obviously, you have to have more successes than mistakes so you won't have a career, but there's no escaping it. Uh, and I, I remember we did all of this sampling for a, a record that um, I can't say which one because that would kind of blow what we were doing. But we were doing all of this sampling for a major artist and we put all the samples together and you could just play them right up the keyboard and they were like different vocal flies and different sounds and it took like eight hours to get all of this together. And at the end of the eight hours, we hit save. And it was on an Akai sampler at the time. So this would be the 90s. And it went. It was supposed to save to the internal hard drive, the Akai sampler. And we hadn't saved anything along the way. So we hit save for the whole day's work. And the Akai locked up and had to be power cycled, which means you lose everything you did that wasn't on the hard drive, which in this case was nothing because everything was in RAM. Nothing was on the hard drive. That was our first save of the day. And of course, with it being lost, the day was gone. And the sampler had to be shipped to Europe the next morning. So this was it. There was no time. Literally, there was physically no time to get another eight hours. And so what we did is we had just... We, because we had done it once and part of the eight hours was learning you know, what we were doing and how we were going to map the sounds and where we were going to get them from and all that, we were able to do the same work in two hours. And literally, the guy from Rocket Cargo picking up the sampler for Europe was waiting at the door while we were finishing the samples. And we were like trying to just small talk them and just keep them from like leaving without it because he, he had to take it with him. And we weren't finished. And it was like, oh, man, the stress level of the, you know, just thinking about the possibility of facing the band and having to say what happened uh, and because we weren't going to accomplish the result was just so stressful. But we don't have to say that because we did it and it all got done and it all got done on time, but in a very unorthodox and highly stressful process. So all this secrecy, I'm assuming, is centering around bands that are using canned vocals during a live performance. Is that what we're talking about here? Well, in some cases, that happens. I would never be at, in a place where I could tell you who and what and, and when, but either live or in the studio or they're augmenting vocals or, you know, there's so many different 
there's so many different reasons you want to use samples. It, samples have gotten a bad rap, right? Because immediately everybody thinks, oh, if they're using a sample, then they're not they're not actually singing it or playing it. Well, yeah, the sample is in fact doing the heavy lifting, but in a lot of cases, that's the only way to play the sound back. You know, you create a sound in the studio with 15 layers of synthesizer, strings, guitars, vocals, percussion, whatever, and then you want that to sound at least reasonably close when you play it live, right? Because you're still going to have a band playing all those things live. But you, if you're missing a certain part, then all of a sudden, uh, you know, you, it doesn't sound like the record anymore. And so, you know, I think samples get a bad rap. I think that because of v Milli Vanilli and, you know, some really extreme <laughs> uses of, uh, of sampling – you know, people automatically started to think like, oh, you know, this is a jive. You know, it's like it's it's not the artist doing what I, I'm paying them to to hear them do. But the fact is that all the artists I've worked with, that's not the case. They're not copping out with samples. Samples are just another instrument. Hey, David, do you know the number one sampled artist? The number one sample. Who is the number one sampled artist? Yeah. Do you know? I don't off the top of my head. No, I can tell you it's Billy Squire. Boom. Really? <laughs> there the you go. There's a, there's a piece of history for you. <laughs> Billy Squire, the stroke. Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't it's not the stroke though. The funny thing is is it's something off like the first album or something. It's something really weird, but uh, I heard him in an interview say that um, he had the record for the number one most sampled artist, and it was uh, it was not The Stroke. It was something off of uh, the first record or something. It was something really off the beaten path. But yeah, uh, wow, we'd be here all night, and I would have never gotten that one. <laughs> I just Billy Squire and Queen yeah. at Boston Garden. Oh, uh, that's and awesome. Oh, it was a totally awesome. It was, I think it was the last tour of both of them, I think, because it was right when Billy had that, that record he made after the huge record and Queen was going through that weird phase and it was before they did Live Aid and all that. And it was, um, it was, it was an incredible show though. I saw Queen twice. I saw him on the, uh, the jazz tour with Bicycle, which they were drop knockout. Like that was the first concert I ever went to. My mom convinced the babysitter to take me because I was only 10 and uh, or 11 and I saw Queen as my first concert on the jazz tour nice. uh, but then ended up seeing him in the mid 80s with Squire and Squire even though that that record he did wasn't very good he was still amazing live and he had all those great hits and it was an incredible show I love Billy Squire so what's next for you man what are you working on what's next for you Man, so many things. You know, we're we're taking Audio One to yet another level. I just brought on a partner, Todd Hansen, who's this incredible CEO. So we're going to take that up a notch. Frangioni Media is we're starting to do more and more entire facilities instead of just individual studios and and projects. And my second and third books were published in 2018, Clint Eastwood Icon, Revised and Expanded, and Crash, World's Greatest Drum Kit. So I'm going to do a fourth book. After I finish this year, I'm going to promote and get out there on those two books and then start working on my fourth book after that. My collectibles business is going to another level. I'm partnering with guys like Darren Julian of Julian's Auctions and, and Jacques Van Gool from Backstage Auctions and a number of different outlets to really take that to another level. All Access Ida is firing on all cylinders. 
you know, the great thing about what I do is within the companies that I have, they're placeholders for evolving, you know? So it's not just that you get another project and that the company does business in the traditional sense. It's that you're always being challenged and it's, it's always another level, you know? Every artist that you come to work with, it's never the same as what you did for the previous one. Even though you have the experience, you're just always learning and growing. So the projects are extremely exciting. I think I'm going to do another drum sample library. You know, the, the first five that I did were all extremely successful. A lot of great records use those libraries. I remember when we got a really cool credit on, on the first Garbage record with Butch Fig, and they used my drum library all over it, and that was really cool. And again, that's all part of technologist by the way. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Yet another element of technologist, hence the term. Uh, and, uh, you know, just going to keep, you know, just keep working on on those projects. It, it's a lifetime of, uh, of evolution and, and growth. I'm very excited. All right. So on your website, I see this picture of you, Steven Tyler, uh, Joe Perry, Tommy Shaw, and Jack Blades. What was that picture all about? Well, Tommy and Jack came in to write songs. Right. So they wrote one of the songs on Big Ones. Remember, Big Ones was the greatest hits that they did on the off of the success of Get a Grip before Nine Lives. Geffen needed another record. Yep. So they did a greatest hits record of Geffen songs, but they needed two new songs to promote it. They needed singles. And Walk on Water was one of the two songs.
and that was written by Joe and Steven and Jack and Tommy, which that picture was taken during those writing sessions. But Joe and Jack and Tommy and Steven had a song on Get a Grip. And I don't remember if there was a third album that had those guys collaborating. I know we had Get a Grip and I know we had big ones. I don't remember if there was another one, but there were multiple times that the four of them came in to write together, of course, before Pump and of course, before Big Ones. There might have even been a third time, but I don't know. Oh, I think there was a third time, but I don't know if we got a single out of it. If there's a song on Nine Lives with the four of them, then we did. If not, then we didn't. I just don't recall. Plus, they would do songs, and uh, then they would put them in the can, and then maybe we'd use them for a movie or, you know, if we needed a B-side, which you'll have to explain to your daughter where the B-side is. <laughs> um, and and so, uh, you know, that was, again, just incredible memory. And that's, of course, how I ended up working with Jack Blades on his projects after that and Tommy Sean Sticks on his projects after that. So it all just evolves. You know, you work together in a scenario like that, and then Tommy says, hey, I've got these things going on over yeah. here. When you're finished with Aerosmith, can, will you work with me on them? And then Jack says the same thing, and, you know, that's that's how it goes. <laughs> oh, it's all about networking. It's a small world. Everybody knows everybody in the music business, don't they? Well, they do, but you got to deliver the goods. Yep. You know, of it, course. I know everybody says it's not what you know, it's who you know, but it's both. Oh, yeah. yeah uh, for sure it is. For sure it is in the music business. There's no doubt in my mind about that. But yeah, once you're in a trusted circle, then, you know, if you've proven yourself and you end up in the trusted circle, then you're good to go. Uh, you can usually make your way. And that seems to be exactly what you've done. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall with those four guys, because I bet those four guys are fun together. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, they really are, man. There's so many memories yeah. and so many great stories. It's just we need 10 more shows to cover even a, po a portion of them. All right. Well, before we go here, we want to do what we call a little lightning round with you before we let you go. So a lightning round essentially is just a handful of questions we ask you and you just don't overthink them. You just give us your whatever pops in your, your head first. Okay. Okay. All right. Favorite listening media, radio, Sirius, your iPhone or streaming. Serious. Name two Desert Island albums. Led Zeppelin, In Through the Outdoor, and Appetite for Destruction. Ooh, nice. Last album you purchased? Um, I got it today. Elvis 68 Comeback Special Deluxe Edition. Oh, nice. Last celebrity that made the fanboy come out in you, like you, you're like a little kid all over again? Paul Stanley. <laughs> That's interesting to say Paul Stanley because the next question is, what is the best Kiss song ever? <laughs> uh, rock and roll all night. All right. You got a choice of one. Loving an elevator, Janie's got a gun, or crying? Crying. What sounds better, CDs or LPs? LPs. And the last question is, what happened to Laserdiscs and do you want to buy any because I got some? <laughs> Man, I, I just sold a hundred of them for a dollar. <laughs> And, and lost, uh, what, $10,000 on that transaction? Uh, 
Man, Laserdisc is the one of the biggest disappointments ever. I got a Laserdisc story that I got to tell you guys another time, but it's a great one. Remind me of the Laserdisc story because I worked with DTS in the 90s on helping them get their surround sound format together as Laserdisc was going out and DVD was coming in. And they were trying to figure out, you know, what to do because neither had one hadn't died and one hadn't clicked yet. And it's just a great story. But yeah, man, laser disc. It's oh god, what a memory I have of laser discs. <laughs> All right, David. Is there anything you want to tell the listeners where they can get a hold of you, what they need to go check out, what they need to support? Go ahead. Well, thanks. I mean, I have Frangioni Foundation, which is my nonprofit that does a lot of good for some people that really need it. And uh, it's a passion of mine. And it's it's definitely a, an important ongoing project that I'm building. So I think the most important thing is Frangioni is spelled F-R-A-N-G-I-O-N-I. If you know that, then you can go to davidjfrangioni.com. You can go to frangionifoundation.com, frangionimedia.com. And all the stuff that I do is embedded in any of those places. And I'm real easy to find. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm just very grateful that, to get to know you guys today and to be on your show and for you to give me an opportunity to share uh, what I've done. Hopefully it helps somebody somewhere with something because at that point it's been worth everybody's time. And, you know, just thank you very much. You guys are amazing and it's been a really enjoyable time here. Awesome, David. Well, we will tie everything into the show notes. So if you're driving your car, don't wreck trying to write down the information. Just go to the show notes at growinguprock.com and you'll have all the links to all these different sites that David talked about. Uh, and David, as is our normal way, we like to shuffle, rattle, and roll out of here. So why don't you pick a rock and roll song to play us out? Loving an Elevator. All right. Thank you, David. Thank you, guys. Rock on. Rock on. Thank you. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys. Good morning, Mr. Tyler. Going down.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.